The history will just fall apart and nobody will know and nobody will remember and, well, nobody but our kids, I guess. And uh, we'll repeat it all over again. This is Plausibly Live, the official podcast of The Dave Bowman Show. I was thinking the other day about a line from a Christmas song, a very popular Christmas song. It's the most wonderful time of the year. It's a line in that story. And it goes like this. There'll be scary ghost stories and tales of the glories. Christmases long, long ago. Um, the only ghost story we seem to have about Christmas, at least the only one I know about, is Charles Dickinson's A Christmas Carol, which is a ghost story, sort of. And it is scary. Scary ghost story. What about glories of Christmases long, long ago? Does anybody tell stories about Christmases that were glorious? I mean, I have a few Christmases that I remember as glorious, but not probably for the same reason. Maybe if you really stretched it, the 1914 Christmas truce during the First World War. But I think there's more importance to that line in that it reminds us that once upon a time, we used to tell stories. We used to tell tales. And those tales were told for a lot of reasons. Maybe they were entertaining. Maybe they were exciting. Maybe they were to get your kid to go to sleep. I don't know. But mostly they were told because we were trying to accomplish something, whether it was the ancient Greeks who were trying to explain how things came to be or something along those lines. Those stories served a purpose. Whether you call them myths or history doesn't really matter. They were very powerful stories. And it seems to me that we have stopped telling stories. We've stopped communicating with each other via that kind of tale, via that kind of interaction. We don't tell people stories anymore. Human history, of course, is full of stories that are similar, that are much alike, and they cover all kinds of societies and all kinds of cultures and all kinds of uh, differences and the likes of that. Go back all the way to Gilgamesh, which is the story of a man who is, well, he's a man. And at one point in his career, he finds himself facing a giant flood and he builds a giant boat and waits out the flood from the gods, continues on with his journey. It's a very similar story to the story of Noah, the story of Noah, which you read in the Bible, where Noah is ordered by God to build a, to build a, a, a boat and save what he can. And he rides out the, the flood in the boat. The stories spread across all, almost every, almost every, every culture has that flood story. Almost every culture has that tale. And the purpose of telling that tale 
is similar, although there are some minor differences in places. In some places, it's a, it's, it's a story about, you know, why God made a rainbow. It's sometimes it's a story about how God, um, or the gods, depending on you know, which side of the story you're telling, can be pacified or could be tricked into allowing a human to survive. The story's purpose, however, remains consistent in the sense that it's trying to teach seceding generations something. When I went to the Holy Land in 1997, and it was the trip of a lifetime. I don't anticipate ever being able to go back, but, you know, you never know. Things might change. Um, one of the things that we were told was that a lot of the sites we were visiting are going to be questionable. In other words, we don't really know if this is where it happened. This is the traditional place where it happened. And we gained most of that tradition from Helena. Helena was the mother of the Emperor Constantine, who, of course, was the first Christian emperor in Rome. One of the first things that Constantine did after he secured his position as emperor was to send his mother, Helena, on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. He had very specific instructions about what she was supposed to do there, including finding the spots where the story of, of Jesus was have occurred, and she was to mark them by building churches and, and shrines and the likes of that. And so throughout her voyage through the, through the Holy Land, this is what she did. She has sown site after site that tradition, and remember this was only, you know, three to four hundred years after the fact, held were the actual sites of those locations. And so there she built her churches, and she built her shrines. And for the most part, many of those remain to this day, and you can go see them, such as the one behind me on the, the video, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, the place where Jesus was said to have been buried after his crucifixion. Now, in the original tradition, this was also the place where he was crucified. So inside of that church is another little shrine that contains another little shrine that Helena probably uh, directed to be built. And it has a little hill on it that has a little rock on it that has a little uh, tomb beneath it. And this is where Jesus was supposed to have been crucified and subsequently buried before he rose. And this was marked by Helena. Now, years later, of course, archaeologists, scientists, whatever, Christians began to disagree about these things, and other places began to be claimed as it. For example, if you go to Israel today, you'll be shown a site called Golgotha. It's out on the edge of the city because it looks like a skull. If you look right behind my head on the video, you'll see what looks like a little face. And this is the place that is claimed as being Golgotha, where Jesus was crucified and subsequently buried, is, is relatively near there. These sites are put together by people who who want you to believe that their place is the place. Whereas the traditional sites, as marked by Helena, archaeology is beginning to show that these are the most likely places. We may not like that, we may not appreciate it, but this usurpation in modern times by, by other places is there. Archaeology is showing that more and more of these places are probably uh, more likely, although they have long ago lost their their 
original, you know, visual effects. They don't have that anymore. And you, you find yourself wondering, well, what did it look like then as opposed to now? The point of this being that these stories were being told and these locations were being marked over and over again. And this helped preserve in history these ideas, this, uh, this uh, mission of Helena that she undertook to mark these spots to this day continues to prove beneficial to those who believe these things, who, who want to know more about these things, because they, they appear that she did mark at least the traditionally held spots within a few hundred years of it happening. The, the flip side of it is we get this idea that we want to change them because we don't like you know, some of the things that are happening. I tell people this story all the time. You go to the, uh, the church of the, I want to call it the Annunciation, but I don't remember. In Bethlehem, Bethlehem, there is a, there, there's a Catholic church, a traditional church on the site. And you go down in the, the cave. And there in the basement of the cave is, you know, a, a shrine where whatever happened, happened. But if you look to your left, there's a big oak door, one of those huge doors like you see in a castle that has a padlock on it. Okay, great. You go out, you walk a couple hundred yards to the other side, and you go to the Protestant church, Greek Orthodox, whatever it is, uh, there. And you go down into that cave, because now this marks the spot. And you get down there, and there's a shrine and everything else. And then you look to your right, and there's a big oak door with a padlock on it. It's not the same spot, but it's literally the same cave. I mean, they just close a door between them. Sometimes the arguments over these things aren't, are less about accuracy and more about who controls what and that's part of the problem with this these stories however continue to enlighten encourage educate elucidate they continue to tell us things about the past that those who lived in the past want us to know it's a Professor that I listened to, Greg Aldretti, said, History is filled with stories of legendary heroes that are now regarded more as myth than as history. But these stories were repeatedly told as history. I've said that to you before. It doesn't matter whether the history of Rome is legit or not. The people who founded this country accepted it as history. He goes on. These tales served a much more important purpose. They are a way of inculcating societal values and giving the next generation a sense of community and of group identity. They provided role models, and they provided examples of behavior and morality. In this context, whether they are strictly true is less significant than the didactic purpose for which the stories served. In other words, why were we telling these stories? Whether you're talking about the myths of Rome or Greece or the Holy Land, the Bible, it doesn't really matter. Why are we telling these stories? A couple of weeks ago, my good friend Mike, the, the Millsurp writer, found himself in Kansas. Doesn't really matter why, but uh, he found himself there at an old SAC Strategic Air Command Museum at which there was a B 52. And the B-52 has very significant meaning to me. My, great, my grandfather, of blessed memory, worked on B-52s 
at Tinker Air Force Base in the 1950s and 60s and 70s even. And when I was a small child, younger even than Ben, I went to work with him one day, and there I was introduced to the B-52, and I got to walk all through that plane. I got to walk on top of that plane, up on the wings, and I got to sit in the pilot's seat. And I got to do all of those things that a small child is fascinated by. These B-52s were flying missions that, as it turns out, one of Mike's kids' ancestors, great-grandfathers, flew during some of these missions. And he was telling him these stories. And he was disappointed because this plane is in bad shape. This plane is just in, in horrible, horrible shape. And when it's gone, who will remember these stories? Who will remember these tales of what this plane and the men who flew this plane did and what they accomplished? Sadly, he concludes, our kids will because we'll tell them. But if no one's telling the stories that inculcate our society with a didactic purpose of improving and, 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 and dwelling in them morality and examples of group identity and community behavior, no one's telling them these stories. Where will they get it? I started thinking about that in a way. In 1981, when I joined the Navy, the World War II veterans, the youngest World War II veterans, people who were 18 in 1942, were in their late 50s, maybe their mid-60s, which is Cold War vets today. In 1991, the World War I vets, World War II vets, sorry, 1991 during the Gulf War, the World War II vets were in their late 60s to early 70s which is where Vietnam veterans, the youngest Vietnam veterans, are today. And in 2001, the global war on terror began. The World War II vets were in their late 70s and early 80s. And today, they're almost gone. The World war, and the Vietnam vets are starting to be gone, and us Cold War vets are starting to go. Our war, the Cold War, was, and still mostly is secret, that B-52 that flew on those missions, they'll never be fully known. The planes, though, are touchstones. They are stories to be told. The submarine monuments are my submarines, most of which are gone now. Weird to me to think that virtually the entire Navy that existed, the ships that actually existed when I was in, are almost all gone. But the memorials to them are touchstones. Memorials to World War II veterans and Vietnam veterans and Korea veterans. They're touchstones. They're stories that can inculcate our society with examples, morality and behavior, encouragement. There are other touchstones in history. Stories can be told from long, long beyond the grave. What do I mean? A few weeks ago, when all this dental stuff started, I was sitting in the chair. Dr. Ha, that's his name, Ha, it's like it sounds, H-A, Dr. Ha, said to me, I have a question for you. What's your goal with all of this? Now, I could have said my goal is to be able to eat. My goal is to be able to smile. Uh, those of you that have paid attention over the past 20 years know that I don't smile much because I show my teeth. But, but those aren't the answers that I came up with. The answers I came up with 
was actually pretty easy because a story had been told to me some years ago. And it's a story that still resonates with me quite a bit. The Royal Museum, Royal Ontario Museum in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, has quite a collection of mummies. They have, I think it's six mummies, maybe seven, I don't remember. And through the years, they have decided to experiment with some of these mummies. And one of the mummies, Ismatasank, is a woman. They know it's a woman because it says her name and all this stuff on the, on the coffin. And they decided to figure out, if they could figure out why Ismatasank died 3,000 years ago. She, as it turns out, died of dental abscesses. Her teeth were, were in bad shape, and they got infected, and the infections burst, and she died of blood poisoning caused by the abscesses. And one of the presenters on the TV show asked the scientists, so what, what would she have looked like in her days? And he said, well, she would have been very ruddy. Her face would have been very red, and she would have had a very difficult time speaking clearly. Much as Egyptians of that era, because they ate bread, a lot of bread, and they lived in the desert, so there was tended to be sand in the bread, and they drank honey beer, so you know what sugar does to teeth. It was not unusual for wealthy royal Egyptians to be plagued by teeth problems. Some of them weren't, but some of them were. And we know of at least one other Egyptian of royal consideration who is described exactly the same way. He was ruddy, red-faced. And by his own admission, he had great difficulty speaking. He didn't like to talk in public. In fact, he begged the Almighty not to make him talk because he had a hard time doing it. Remember Moshe? And for me, that's a connection point. Oh, wait. Jismatasank had the same physical issues that Moses may have had. It makes sense. But most importantly for me, I said to my doctor, I said to Dr. Ha, look, um, I told him that story, this Matasank, and the CT scan, and the fact that she died of these And I said, my goal is I don't want to die because of my teeth. Kind of laughed. He said, you're not going to die because of them, but it, it's going to hurt. I don't want to die because of my teeth. But if I do die because of my teeth, I want it to be a story for the ages, to be handed down to other people who can learn from my mistakes, who can learn, who can be inculcated with societal values and behaviors that will be better for them because eh, it didn't do so good. And this is the power of the stories that we tell. This is the power of our communication of stories and how they can affect our behavior. It instills in our society the values that will allow it to survive. Take care of your teeth, because if you don't, you're going to end up like Jasmata Sunk on display at the Royal Ontario Museum, and people are going to go, you should have brushed your teeth. By the way, I do brush my teeth, but there were other problems that caused problems. It was a simple thing. I mean, it really was. You think about this. It, this, this whole story of Jasmatasank was a deciding factor in whether or not I would go to the dentist or not, because I didn't want to die because of my teeth. There are parents who say to their children, 
don't make your face like that because someday it'll freeze like that. It's a simple story that teaches something like public behavior, right? It's something that encourages better behavior. It's a story of, you know, making sure that you learn that you've got to behave a certain way or things might not go the way you want them to. The stories of the past, whether they're history or myth, or whether we see them as both, it's really irrelevant, serve that purpose. It isn't just we forgot our history. I, I, that's an excuse a lot of us make. Maybe it's just that we stopped telling the stories of our history. I know that there are people out here who do it on a regular basis, and they do a very good job of it. But what about us? Do we tell our children the stories, the histories, the myths? Those things designed to inculcate into them societal values and moral values that we want them to have because we know that these are the best ways. It has given a sense of community and a group identity. Whether the stories are strictly true or not is less important than the didactic purpose that the stories we tell serves. And that's why we should be telling stories each and every day. Scary ghost stories, tales of the glories, all of those things have meaning, all of them have purpose, and all of them will help restore, if we can, the things that we hold valuable, including maybe Heath. Sure hope so, because 2023 is going to be a going to be a hard year on my teeth. I wish you the best of the holidays. I wish you happy Hanukkah, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. We will see you in 2023. Ready to tell a lot more stories.